You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Amen. Transgender. Some preliminary comments to start us off. Uh, today I'm going to be using, I'll be using the term transgender um, uh, and by, I, I mean no disrespect, but I'll be largely referring to the LGBTQ plus category, um, but I don't have that many syllables that quickly. So I will just say transgender and that will catch cry a lot of what we could say in that space. Um, I don't mean any disrespect, but if you could afford me that grace, I'd be thankful. Um, Obviously, we can't cover everything today. Uh, I would like to, from the front, recommend some amazing resources onto this topic. Anything by Rebecca McLaughlin, Rosaria Butterfield, and Sam Albury has been incredibly helpful in thinking through these issues, issues theologically, practically, and lovingly uh, through the lens of the Bible. And uh, last preliminary is, uh, to whom am I addressing today? Perhaps in leading up to today's uh, sermon, that has been probably one of the hardest questions to sort of nut out personally for myself. Uh, where am I? It's the primary audience. Are we, am I we talk, talking to skeptics, doubters, but those with gender dysphoria, someone that is just tuning in from at home? Um, there's a lot of potential audiences, which changes what I will say and how I will say it. But my main audience today is, is none of the above. It's to you. It's to you. Um, I want to speak to you, my church family, uh, those uh, that are committed to this church. I believe that has God, God has called me to be committed to you and to your love and maturity in Christ. And it's my desire to first love and serve you today in this topic. So with that in mind, there is some knowledge that I'm assuming this morning as I speak about these things. What knowledge is that? am I assuming? Suffice to say, if today was a classroom environment, today we are light on theological lecture and we are heavy on gospel prac. Okay. Um, I'm assuming that many of you are, are more interested in thinking about how to live, how to live it in honour of Jesus in the face of this issue, as opposed to having some theological thoughts on your belt. I'm assuming that many of you already have a basic understanding that God's that God has a created design that's taught through the Bible. I'm consuming that many of us are convinced that all people are created in the image of God. And just because of that one beautiful fact, all people have intrinsic worth, beauty and value. All people. I'm also assuming that God as you would, you would agree that God as creator, or perhaps you're discovering that God as creator who made night and day, heavens and earth, also made female and male, and that both are beautiful, both are necessary, both are equal in value, yet have different roles to play in creation as they complement one another in reflecting God's good and glorious character. Now, I realise already that some of these are very big, bold statements. 
But again, I refer to who I am, think I am primarily speaking to today. And I refer to those readings before if you'd like to, inc like to think more about what I've already said. Lastly, I'm assuming that we're a people that know that Christ loves us and has called us to live a life that is going to honour him and that because of his love, we are a people that can be also a people of humility and grace because we know what it means to be loved and to be accepted despite our flaws and despite the ways that we may have and did have dishonour him. So let's dive into today's topic with that foundation laid. You don't need to tell, you don't need me to tell you how complex our current topic of transgender is for our day. It is a complex topic. Uh, and to that, I say, great. <laughs> Complexity is a wonderful opportunity to show the beauty and good news of Jesus Christ. Today, I hope that your main takeaway is this, that the person and purpose of Jesus Christ will give you clarity and will give you confidence to live rightly in the midst of complexity. Now, I know that rhymes and alliterates, but that's unintentional. Jesus really does provide us with all that we need to live rightly, a God-honouring way, a human-flourishing way in the midst of complexity. He really does provide us with all that we need. He really is just that good. Transgender is complex. Now, a few comments, if perhaps you're not aware of the complete sphere of complexity. Now, this is just social commentary. I'm not making any moral judgments of what is right or wrong. But today we live uh, in an age and a culture where it's, there is easier access for a minor to attain a lifelong gender transition treatment. It's easier to get that mm -hmm. than it is for a tattoo. There are doctors today that are genuinely concerned about this cultural moment in terms of transgender affirmation. There are fears in the medical world on one side that it may be the new form of anorexia that people are buying into to find some form of identity with a changing body. There is also a growing community of transgender transition regretters who have been reflecting on their experience and have now gone both ways and are lamenting at the lack of actual care that they received. But then there is also those that are advocating right now from a mental health perspective that as they read the statistics, the sad statistics of suicide and depression, there are those that are in support of those seeking gender transitions in the hope that the surgeries and those transitions may lead to a better quality of life for those people. There are those that will interpret that same data of suicidal tendencies and transition for, these, for this type of uh, community and they will come to different conclusions. 
But perhaps the hardest of all in the face of this topic is despite the, despite the fast pace of our cultural moment, and this is what makes it so hard, we're still trying to catch up. It is moving so quickly. Doctors, psychiatrists, pastors, councils, workers, it's, it's moving quickly. Despite how fast it is, despite the many research conclusions that are saying more research needs to be done, the conversation has now become political. At least for our local government, they are now involved at the point of making decisions that to question and to offer personal support that does not only affirm positive movement towards life-changing surgery, medication or body alteration. You can be imprisoned. It's very complex. It's very complex. And I'm very aware that many of us know people that are living in this tension right now. If you're a teacher, God be with you. If you're a parent, God be with you. If you work in the secular space, God be with you. It's complex, it's political, it's personal, it strikes at the very heart of identity as people wrestle with what is the most loving response to people's felt pain? Because that's what it is, isn't it? It's a felt pain that people don't know what to do with. Now, perhaps at this point, you are tempted to think the world has gone mad. It's never been this bad before. You'd kind of be right. The world did go mad back in Genesis 3. We've got the record of that. But is this the worst it's ever been? The good news is not really. I'd love for you to take a walk with me uh, down the streets of Rome in 57 AD. Let's go for a walk down the streets of Rome. Uh, let's, let's picture that you've been staying with uh, the man named Tatius, good Roman name, uh, and he's, uh, he's been showing you some wonderful hospitality. Uh, he's already given us the best insights on where to find the, best, the region's best wine, and he's already uh, told you that the local beaches are only just a few three a three hour chariot ride down to the east, and now you are with Tadius and you are on your way to church. Tadius, he is so glad to bring you uh, of the church that meets into in the house where uh, I think it's been Phoebe that's been helping set that one up, and he tells along the way with such enthusiasm of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that spread to his region. Tadia shares out how he got, first got to hear for, about Jesus through his own family. Uh, one of his dad's cousins was actually uh, in the, well, a Roman centurion and knew Cornelius, uh, the one that had recently been baptised by Peter. There's a bit of excitement that is obviously oozing out of Tadius on your way to church. Now, it's obvious that Tadius he has a love for Jesus and that he's been a part of the church in Rome and, it's, and, and he loves his church in Rome. It's part of his maturity and his development to, to love and to know who Jesus is better and so he can walk in a way that lives out what is good for him. But as you walk down the streets of Rome in 57 AD, following Tadius as he skips along in his Roman skirt, I don't know, do you have a toga? I'm not sure. I probably should have done more historical research. But the historical research that I can tell you is that the shops, there's shops along the way and you can look in there and you can purchase an idol 
or a statue to a pagan god, freely and, ex- and accepted and part of the culture of Rome. Then there's the butcher you go past, three quarters of the meat in the window. It has products that have been labelled not only with the special for the day, but to which god that that meat was sacrificed to. And then there's stickers in the front windows of other shops, of clothing stores and markets that welcome, that welcome the protective spirits of the rivers and the trees. And then as you keep going, you see a poster, a poster for the sign for the local sporting event at the MCG, I mean the Colosseum, the place of the big religious gathering that would happen for people's entertainment. And then there's also below that poster, off in the distance you see a sign which points to the baths and the gymnasium of Rome. And you're not quite sure what goes on there, but you're pretty sure it's a little bit dodgy. Because below that sign, there's another sign, and that's the one directing you to the temples and to the buildings for sacrifice and worship and ritual to the many gods that were thought to bring prosperity and protection to those that would care to indulge. You're thinking about these things. The smell of oregano is in the air. There's clinking goblets of wine and the the, 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 just the, the, the vibe of Italy. But Tadeus, he notice you, notices you looking around and he smiles and he comments on how actually he used, he used to participate in many of the things that you see around him. But he's also shared how he's been learning the way of Jesus Christ and he's been getting better at living without those things. It's been hard. It's been hard. But the more he reflects and the more he's been pursuing Christ, he doesn't really miss them like he thought he would. Now coming around the corner, you see as well as all these signs and sights and smells, you see government officials escorted by Roman soldiers taking taxes and money to support all of the activities which you've just been coming to terms with in your mind. Now, I wonder if any of these sights and sounds of Rome in 57 AD call to mind maybe of what you see around us in our world today. You see, even back for the early church, despite how bad we think things might be right now and the pressures we feel with different cultural tensions and political and religious emphases, the church in Rome, in fact, all the churches throughout the Bible, all throughout human history, they're very similar to what we have today. There's nothing new under the sun, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. The church in Rome, as we read it, we might be tempted to think that it's filled with super Christians that are doing life with amazing Christian freedom, but it's made up of people just like you and me. People that fear and worry about the future people who are concerned about their situation at work, people that have relationship troubles, people that so often feel stretched and tired and confused and even overwhelmed at all that's going on, people that fear what the next governmental pressure might be that could be applied to them. They exist in a society that has its tensions and its new tensions and its laws and its new laws just like we do. And we can take confidence in that. 
It's beautiful. And there's one thing that's also consistent to the church back then that's consistent today. It's just as they had church back then, we have church family today, don't we? We have a people that are committed to Jesus. I hope that people see us as a people who are committed to Jesus, who are committed to being together and being reminded of some pretty significant counter-cultural realities. Reminded of a reality that makes a lot of difference, not only to life now, but also eternal life to come. It's a reality that gives us clarity and confidence to face complexity. What is that reality? Well, to sum it up in one word, I'd say salvation. Given more flesh, it's, it's a word that is worked out across three dimensions of time that gives us clarity and confidence to face complexity. It's a salvation in Christ across three aspects of time that past you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Salvation. You see, as the church in Rome knew, our church family, our church community also needs to know that we meet and we live and we exist because of the salvation we have and are working out together and look forward to in Christ. Salvation in its three parts, past, present and future. For what is, what is salvation past? Well, salvation past is you have been saved. What have you been saved from? You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. Theologians use a fancy word called justification. Justification. It's done. Do you know Christ as Lord and Saviour? Is Christ your best friend, big brother and treasure? Salvation, it's done. You are forgiven, washed, cleansed, stamped, sealed by the Holy Spirit, brought into the family God. The paperwork's done, it's signed. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. When God looks on you, He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And this means confidence, doesn't it? You are safe and secure in the mighty hands of a sovereign God. Salvation. Because salvation costs God what? Everything, didn't it? For God so loved the world, God so loved the surf coast, God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son. God gave out of His poverty one Son. It cost Him everything. And if And if God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give give us all things? Saved from the penalty of sin. And so we as a church family, as the church in Rome did, we come together on Sunday, during the week, in homes, over meals, over the phone, life on life, intentionally, deliberately keeping this good news on repeat. The biggest problem of our lives has been taken care of, saved from the penalty of our sin, salvation. 
that will help you have confidence to negotiate complexity. God is for you. Who can be against you? But then there's also salvation present, isn't there? Salvation present. You are, not only have you been saved, but you are being saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin. Fancy theological word for this one is sanctification. Justification, sanctification. Salvation is also being done. You and God with the help and the leadership of the Holy Spirit and with Jesus. So as Paul closes his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, I would remind you brothers of the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Philippians 2, Paul backs this up, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God saves us from the penalty of sin. He loves us. He loves us. He doesn't expect us to clean ourselves up so that we can be saved. He loves us just the way that we are. He also loves us so much not to leave us the way we are. He calls us to look to the person of Christ, to follow in his footsteps. That's why Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, wait there and I'll be back on the second coming. Follow me, live my life. It's not that we'll one day be sinless in our own efforts, but that we are over time being changed to sinless to the honour and praise of God so he can show off to the heavenly realms. He's like, look at those guys. Yeah, they're mine. Look what we're doing together. Like, they're they're my kids. Yeah, you would have thought that the devil's temptation, would they be running off to it? But they are with me and look what we are doing together. But God will finish the work. God will finish the work. And that is salvation future, isn't it? Salvation future, past, present, future. Justification, sanctification, We are saved from the presence of sin in glorification because that's the tension right now of sanctification, isn't it? Trying to live like Christ, even with our own flesh, just like constantly competing with our desires. And there's like, there's things that we're like, I want to do this, but then I'm like, I don't do this. And there's things that we don't want to do. And then we find ourselves doing them. It's just like, oh, there's this war within my mind. We come back to, okay, I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I have the Holy Spirit. We have power to overcome and we can walk this out. But we long for and look forward to glorification saved from the presence of sin. Christ's second coming in glory, in the heavens. That's like going to be, that's like the two best things about heaven. You are with Jesus, like with him, like hug, high five, fist bump, go fishing with Jesus. And you are also without any sin. No sin. Nothing in your heart that is going to, nothing of your, nothing of yourself that is going to like ruin your, even your most purest desire. That's awesome. Because you know, sometimes when you do like a good deed and then like there's that little voice that's just like, oh, aren't you good? You're so much better than them. And you're like, no, I ruined it. <laughs> like stupid brain. It's like, what are you doing? 
saved from the presence of sin. We can endure now and persevere even amidst the trials because there is kept in heaven for us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. So I ask, do you know this salvation? Past, present, future, justification, sanctification, glorification. Have you entrusted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive this free gift and to walk in this fresh start? You can, you can be saved. You can be being saved and you can have the assurance that you will be saved. Just come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him. Trust in his name and you will be forgiven. So then, you're like thinking, Louis, that's a nice little theological excursus there, you know, on sanctification. Where's the clarity for living in that? Where's the clarity? How's that going to help me today in my understanding of a complex topic? For this, we need to dial into sanctification. We need to dial into what it means to becoming more like Jesus. As we walk in the footsteps of follow in, in our following of Jesus, that helps us. It gives us our guiding light, light of the world for the situations when we find ourselves being afflicted by what seems what seems to be darkness. Now, really, when you think about it, sanctification is beautifully logical. Like it's the logical outworking of seeing and experiencing the love of God and now knowing Jesus as King. Okay, like you have grasped hold, you save from the penalty of sin, you have grasped hold of your fresh start and the gift of a new life one in the kingdom of God now to be lived out with Jesus. And now sanctification is the discipline of putting that new life into practice, isn't it? Sanctification is the changed and changing life. It's the renewed life. You'd say it's the repentant life. So what is that? What is at the heart of the root, root, the word, the rude word, the word repentance in Greek, it's metanoia. It is a change of mind, a changing in your thinking, a shifting in your, your preferred direction. That's why Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, like it's here. There's like new life ready. So change your mind about what you thought was the right way to live. Change your direction and go this way. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel, which brings you into the kingdom. Sanctification is the childlike faith of picking up the Bible, looking at Christ and taking it seriously. Now, at this point, we could launch into some very practical applications for life from the Bible. But before I do, there's a key understanding that can get missed and that can completely shipwreck rightly applying those practical applications. We need to get to the heart heart issue of understanding our pursuit of sanctification and how it's lived out. Now, these statements should give some clarity. Now, this may not be new, but it's important you are reminded. If you are saved from the penalty of sin, you are someone that is in a new family. If you have entrusted yourself to God as father, you are a child of light. If you have been, if you see Jesus as Lord and King, you are a kingdom citizen. You are on a new team. 
Now, here's the logic to that thinking. The logical extension means that we now, you should now see this world as the Bible says God sees this world, which is two types of people. Now, I'm not talking about the fun ones, like those that keep sauce in the fridge and those that keep it in the pantry or those that leave the toilet seat up and those that put it down or those that go to bed early and those that go to bed late. We're talking about the two biblical categories of in Christ or in Adam or in the kingdom of light or in the kingdom of darkness or a believer or a non-believer or of the flesh or of the spirit, a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin, a child of God or someone who is separate and apart and an enemy of God. Now, don't just take my word for these two categories. Let the Bible give some more information to aid us, to the church in Thessalonica. Paul writes, you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. To the churches in Ephesus, Paul writes, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. To the churches in Colossae, Paul writes, he has delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. His beloved son is the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, today's Aussie egalitarian culture hates this language, doesn't it? We prefer to act like we're all the same. Don't make distinction, man. We're all on the same playing field. But this this distinction, this identity marker, no matter who you are listening today, it's freeing for both sides. Like if you're just like visiting church and finding out like what do the Christians think about this, like this should free you. Like let's work out the example of understanding two types of people. Take the non-believer and the believer, okay? If you are a non-believer, you just take the Bible's category and enter into that. If you don't believe in the authority of God, if you don't believe the Bible or you don't believe that you're in a family that is led by Jesus, logically, your belief will already tell you that you don't have to do anything with what the Bible says. Like logically, you're like, you, don't need, you don't need to be offended. Like you, you don't need to do anything with this information that you don't believe. Like to you, it's irrelevant, so it can stay irrelevant. Like that's freeing, right? Like if you're like reading the reading, like what do Christians believe? Okay, there's two types of, okay, they think that I'm like, okay, fine. I don't believe any of that anyway, so it doesn't matter. It's like me reading the manual for Dungeons and Dragons and being like, I don't play this game, so this is all irrelevant to me. I don't care if they call me a wizard or a, or a werewolf, you know, <laughs> doesn't matter. And if you're a believer and you see the non-believer who does not want to be in the family, Like, that's freeing too, because like you don't need to apply to them your family values. It's like, all right, cool. Like as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, it's like, what do we have to do with outsiders? Like, let's just, let's just like clean our own room and make our own bed first. And like, let's just do our things right first before we start trying to merge these two categories. It's freeing and helpful. But more importantly though, if you are a believer, 
if you know that you, that you yourself are someone that is forgiven by God and accepted because of what Christ has done, not what you have done, understanding yourself in this way as being in the family helps you in living out your fundamental identity because you now live with the family values of God. If you've properly understood the gospel, if you've properly understood who God is, who the Bible said God is, that God is a loving father and that his kids can trust the way that he says to live. If you know Jesus as the good shepherd and whose sheep will listen to his voice, if you see Jesus as the sacrificial loving king, then your kingdom citizens, his kingdom citizens have a, an, an enthusiasm to live his way like the church in Rome. They read the letter that they get from the Apostle Paul with expectation and anticipation. All right, what's it mean to be a part of the family of God? Let's go. They get to Romans 12. They open it up. They've just been doing this discourse of the gospel. They just got through some of that stuff in Romans 11. It was a bit tricky, but they're like, oh, the Romans 9 stuff makes good sense. And they go to Romans 12 and he goes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, family language in the family, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not keep be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. And you go, yeah, all right, okay. God has some head work for me to do in my sanctification of being saved. My thinking about how is going to be saved from the power of sin. And you keep reading down, you scroll down the scroll, you get a few more verses and you, and you read from Paul, okay, let love be genuine. Yeah, I'm all for that. Abhor what is evil. Okay, yeah, evil doesn't sound good. Evil sounds evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And you go, yeah, I'm in God's family. Like that makes complete sense. Like I'm all for that. God has some head work and some hands work for me to do. My thinking and my doing is going to be saved from the power of sin. And then you scroll down a few more verses. And in verse 13, it says, let us walk properly in the daytime. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And you go, yeah, okay, I've got some work to do on my desires on my lifestyle, on my casual encounters. I'm a person that is not driven and led by my feelings alone. Put on Jesus, okay, put on Jesus. He laid his life down for, he laid his life down. He laid down his preferences for my glorification. There's that word again. So I have to take steps to lay down my life and my preferences for his glorification. 
This is the life of sanctification, taking the Word of God seriously, understanding who it's written to, and that you are one of those people that it's written to if you confess the Lord Jesus. As it says in James, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be saved in his doing. So the sanctified life, the one being saved from the power of sin is one looking to the teaching of the Bible for wisdom, clarity and conviction for the kingdom life. So as we face some of these complex issues, whatever they may be, start with the Bible open. And you can even prepare in advance. consuming and digesting the Word of God. Because we don't know what's around the corner. God does. And He's given us the words of life to negotiate it all. And we read that knowing we're His kids, we're for His family. This is all good. And if how, if, if, if we read something there and we're like, oh, I don't like that, don't like that, how that's phrased. Oh, I don't like that. It's just like, well, I was watching a movie the other day. Uh, anyone seen Hackshaw Ridge? And there's like that encounter with the, uh, the young guy who's enlisted and the, the, the recruiting officer said to him, uh, you don't have to take up a weapon. And when he's, he's enlisted and then the guy, he's just like, you have to pick up a weapon. And he's talking to his CEO and he's just like, no. He immediately says, but the army made a mistake. They made a mistake. And the guy immediately says back to him, he's just like, the army doesn't make mistakes. You've made a mistake. You come to the Bible understanding that God is good and loving and powerful and for you, when you come to that, you're like, oh, God's clearly made a mistake. I don't like how that's phrased. If the Bible just agrees with everything you want it to say, then God is made in your image. You are not letting the image of God shape you. We not only look to the teaching of the early church, we also need to look to the life Jesus lived on how to live. And Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. Jesus was full of grace, full of truth. This is the rub for how Christians engage in these complex issues. Full of grace, full of truth. We've established that there's two types of people, one that will be willing to listen, one that doesn't want to listen or feels like they don't need to listen. And we know that Jesus enters into the stage of human history and is going to encounter those types of people, both types of people. And Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. He's full of grace. He's merciful, he's kind, he's patient, he's generous. In John 4, Jesus goes to the woman at the well in the middle of the day. She's obviously doing bad stuff to have to exclude herself in that way. And she already feels judged by everyone around her in the life that she's living. Jesus goes to her and he has the kindest, gentlest conversation and talks to her about where she can find living water. He's so gentle. He's so gentle. So gentle, so gracious, so merciful. He still speaks truth. He doesn't compromise the truth, but he's, he reaches out to her and engages in a hospitable conversation. In John 8, there's the woman caught in adultery. If you're caught in adultery, like if you, that means, I want to tell you what that means. 
But he, he, this woman is thrown before Jesus. She's obviously in the, in the Bible's categories, a sinner. And Jesus, instead of condemning her in that moment, he instead shows her grace, doesn't he? Beautifully patient and kind with her in that moment, knowing with the wisdom and the leading of the spirit, what the next step for her is going to be. Still speaks truth, still says that she's forgiven, still says go and sin no more. But he doesn't get along with the crowd and try and shut her down. Jesus, gentle and gracious, showing grace. And in Luke 7, there's the woman who is weeping, who goes to Jesus. She comes to him this time, crying, washes his feet with her tears. She's a woman of the city, the text says. Woman of the city, that's not positive language. If you're a woman of the city, walking the streets, earning money in ways that she wouldn't have liked to have admit. Jesus doesn't condemn her in her sin. He recognises that she's come to him and she's looking for hope and peace and forgiveness. And Jesus shows grace, full of grace. And Jesus, he's also full of truth, isn't he? To those that should have known better, to those that thought they were on team God, Jesus says to the religious Pharisees of the day, he says, you hypocrites, you fools, you snakes, you vain, power-hungry, murdering vipers. In John 8, he says to the religious men of the day that their father is of the devil. He's full of truth as well, isn't he? Constantly holding it in balance, full of grace, full of truth. And it's here that, the, that as the church, we get the practical tools to engage in these complex situations as well. When we face with what the Bible would say are people in sin, as Jesus faced the, what the Bible said were people in sin. But before I get to what it looks like exactly for us, let's just talk about what it doesn't look like. Let's talk about how the ways churches have really screwed this up. You see, there are churches today where they will overemphasize truth when they should be emphasizing grace. They are hardened cardboard Christians that have an answer for everything, but no time for anyone. They completely misunderstand, they, they apply the family values to people that don't even think that they're in the family. They're just striking down with truth. And maybe it is true, but where's the grace? Where's the love? Where's the acceptance? And then there's the other side, isn't there? There's churches today that will overemphasize grace when they should be speaking and leading with truth. Soft, conformist Christians that don't have any real conviction apart from, I just don't want to be a reason for division. And that's where they've got people who they would say, oh, well, they're on my team, they're on team Christian, but it's just like, we'll just accept them. It's just like, well, hold on a minute. No, no, no. If you're a part of the family, you play, you're, you've got the family values. You play by the team's plays. You live as a kingdom citizen. You can't take, apply the grace so that you just freely just saying it's a free for all for just do whatever you want. That's not, it's not what, God, it's not what God's about. 
the grace is, grace still needs to be applied in these churches, but not so much that it compromises actually the truth of what God says is good. So how do we avoid this? Well, so often what isn't happening in these churches is that people are only looking at what Jesus does. They are not seeking to understand to whom and why. They're not looking at Jesus's audience so that they can rightly apply their grace and truth to theirs. You see, the way that you engage with someone that says that they are of the light is very different to, the, to someone that may not even know they're in darkness. It's very, very different. It's like the, the difficulty of that rugby sevens situation. The guys that didn't wear the jersey, like that was made so much harder because it was broadcast on to the world. We don't know who those seven guys were. We don't know who they were chatting to. We don't know like what, what people were in their family, what, what people weren't in their family. Like we don't know the context. We just wanted one clear, sharp answer that would apply to everyone. It doesn't work like that. It's relational. It's pe- Jesus going to people. It's people coming to Jesus. It's not a crowd that stands back just to watch a movie and be like, oh yeah, they did that wrong. We need to be wise. We need to be patient and slow and dependent on the Spirit in this. And this is who we need to be as a church. We need to be a community. If we're to live out love and grace and truth well in our transgender cultural moment, we need to be a community that is constantly, prayerfully, spirit-dependently, biblically seeking to apply what seems to be the most wise and most God-honoring application at the time. And I mean all of that. I mean all of that. Prayerfully, spirit-dependently. I don't use those words because they alliterate nicely either. You've got to be praying and asking that God would lead you in how you can best love someone. You can't do that on your own. To represent Jesus well, you'll be like, Jesus, (laughs) help me in this. Help. Maybe you don't know what it's like to pray like that. Every Monday we meet to pray. And this is one of the things we pray for. Help us to be a church that loves this community well. And you've got to be spiritually discerning, patiently waiting to notice the soft, small nudges of the way that the Holy Spirit, the way that He will lead you. He gets called the helper in Scripture. You can expect Him to help you. See, that's a, that's a whole taking the Bible seriously thing again. Like you can expect that. And if you don't know what that looks like, learn from someone around you that you know and trust and, is, and that you are seeing do that well. Like it's one of the reasons we have GCs. Like you can't see that worked out and lived out on a Sunday, but get in each other's lives and learn from people that are living in this way. And biblically, is your Bible open? Is your Bible open and not just to the one page that confirms your bias, but are you taking into account into account the whole counsel of God. Do you need help with that? Keep coming here on a Sunday. Keep reading at home. Lead into the structure of our gospel communities as the questions that we ask our, that we ask our leaders to lead with are questions that are going to help you learn to read the Bible well. We need to be constant in prayer. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to seek first the kingdom of God so that we can 
lovingly honour and serve God, which will in turn love and serve the world. And as you do that, as you seek to engage in this grey, difficult, hard situation, like the situations are all so hard, they're all super complex because they're all different. Remember, there's always more grace from God. Grace and truth, there's always more grace. Like as we'll stuff it up. Or someone will tell you that you've stuffed it up. Maybe you haven't. But there's more grace. Remember, save from the penalty of sin. Now, there's no one right answer in how to engage with everyone at every time because there's never just one scenario. It really does depend on the person, the situation, the relationship, and the next appropriate step in all of that. Sometimes you just want to run someone towards us, just like, oh, get them, get them to the cross. Get them repenting and believing. Maybe it's going to take two years of love before they actually feel that you know. Now for us as a church, if in doubt, if you're like, man, this is also overwhelming, trying to understand the person I'm talking to, trying to figure out the next thing to say, you know, are they in the kingdom? Are they not in the kingdom? I don't know. If you, if you, if you worry, just start with prayer and then just start with the order that you get in the Bible, grace, then truth. Because if you spend a bit, a bit more time on the grace part, you're pretty safe, you know? <laughs> And if you worry that you're probably not you're doing that for too long, you know, there's people around you that you can ask, you can talk to. Like, am I letting that, am I letting that run too long? You know, there's wise people around you. We need to be a people of grace. Because right now, the world thinks that they know that the church just wants to push on them truth. And we need to show them a countercultural way. We need to show them the way of Jesus. I mentioned before the reading, Rosaria Butterfield. She writes a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Rosaria Butterfield was a fierce advocate uh, for the transgender movement. Uh, and uh, she'd written a letter uh, to, a, I think it was a local paper, uh, with a severe critique on, I think at the time was a, a Christian movement. She got a lot of... Uh, mail back to her office, affirming her well-crafted speech. And she also got a lot of hate mail, unfortunately, from a lot of Christians. But then there was what their sto her story goes that there was one letter that she received that was from a reformed pastor. And um, it wasn't shutting her down, wasn't a spewing of truth to try and correct everything that perhaps she had just not quite got right. And... It was actually an invitation to continue the conversation and to talk more and to come over for dinner. And Rosario Butterfield writes in her biography that, um, she, you know, the reason she went for, for, dinner that, for, for dinner the first time was she thought, well, if I can get behind enemy lines and get to know these Christians, I'll like have some really good ammunition to just be like, ruin these people. I'll, like, I'll get in their heads. I'll know how they think, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. So she started going to dinner and she actually 
um, she writes in her biography that she was surprised to find that over time, her and uh, this man and his wife, they actually became friends. They had her over for dinner and they just wanted to get to know her. Just wanted to love her and they were conscious of the type of uh, type of lifestyle that she preferred. You know, she wanted to be energy conscious and she had a particular diet and they all catered for all of those different things. And she just couldn't believe that there was these people that were willing to engage in thoughtful, understanding conversation, and even just to listen, to show that they're willing to care. She writes that the, the, the result of, of just seeing their life and being in this loving community of feeling just accepted and not judged and hearing this husband and wife, you know, pray over the dinner table and show just such love, it brought her to the foot of the cross to actually understand the love that Jesus has for all of us. There was no one righteous, not even one. There is no one that does good. There's no one that seeks God. All have turned away. But that's not where it ends, is it? But now the righteousness of God has been shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes us as we are. He makes his enemies his friends and he takes the hit and he pays the price so that we can be brought near. Imagine if our church was defined by people that were willing to engage with love and with grace, not compromising on truth, but just there to show that we care and that we're willing to listen. Always praying to God, lead me in whatever this next step is. Grace, truth, grace, truth, grace, truth. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Bible open. And not trying to cherry pick and apply things over, over categories and merging things where they don't need to be merged. So I've talked too long. I'm going to close on this. Jesus modeled to us laying down one's life, making enemies friends, bringing people near at the expense of his life, but also not at the expense of truth. Are you in the family of God? Do you know this forgiveness and the warmth of Christ? If that's you, Jesus says to you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.